When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. If you like my show, you're going to love Ben Greenfield's Fitness on Podcast One. Tune in to the latest health, fitness, and multi-sport research, non-run-of-the-mill interviews with exercise and medicine professionals, and new cutting-edge content from the top personal trainer and wellness coach in the nation. Download Ben Greenfield Fitness every Wednesday on Podcast One or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Danny Lurie, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is the great Kevin Pelton of ESPN. He has done a lot of fantastic work, in particular on the trade deadline, always fantastic, but really, I think he does some great work then. And we have a, a great conversation really going through some of the big picture and small picture stuff that came out of the trade deadline the hierarchy in the East being a big part of it, free agency, and everything that comes with that. So uh, a wonderful conversation. It is brought to you by Peter Millar. You can check out their amazing stuff at com slash RealGM. You also get free shipping and free hat, which is awesome. BetOnline.ag. Use that podcast one promo code for a 50% signup bonus. Art of Sport where you enter the Real GM promo code for 50% off their trial kit plus free shipping, and TrueCar, great place to sell or trade in your car as well. Conversation runs about an hour 15, and then there's a bonus little segment with Dave Mason of betonline.ag talking about how they handle the trade deadline, both in terms of games, but then more importantly, in terms of futures, which is a topic that I know a little bit about, but don't know about from his perspective. So that was a lot of fun. That's a little five minute conversation at the end as well. Hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks as always for having me. This has been a very eventful week plus in the league. I mean, you could extend it out with the, with the Anthony Davis trade request, which ended up not being fulfilled so far. And with all of that going on, I, I think I'll, I'll open it to you, though I have a pretty good idea of where you want to go with it, of the most significant takeaway of the trade deadline and surrounding time. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's sort of two tracks we can go on and, you know, the short term track and the long term track. But let's start on the short term track uh, because that's 
obviously going to matter sooner. And I think that's the way that the top teams in the Eastern Conference, aside from the Boston Celtics, loaded up at the deadline. And what looks like it's going to be an incredibly competitive uh, conference semifinal round in the East uh, in a way that we haven't really seen much in recent seasons. There is a credible argument, and I think this is where I would be, though there are plenty of Valley contenders on the Western side, that after the moves that happen, not saying with what they've been so far this season, that moving forward, four of the five best teams in the NBA are in the Eastern Conference. And some might downplay that because the number one team is not in the Eastern Conference. And if we disagree with that, that could be a fun conversation. But the Bucks, Raptors, Sixers, and Celtics, they're very deep teams. They have strengths that are, are going to work in the playoffs. They have some weaknesses too. I mean, none of these teams are perfect, just like none of the teams in the West are. But in a year where I don't particularly trust anyone outside of the Warriors because of aging and talent and everything else, I just think they have a better accumulation of guys right now. I, I tend to think so too. I mean, you know, I think probably Philadelphia is the the biggest debate in there because in terms of their performance this season, they've been behind both Oklahoma City and Denver in the Western Conference. But we're still kind of determining just how much they improved by adding Tobias Harris to the mix and, you know, through two games, granting that they've both been at home and uh, the Sixers have shot the ball incredibly well from three point range in both of those games. They've looked really phenomenal thus far and and i think that you know you can credibly make a case that they belong there ahead of anyone and yeah it's kind of fascinating because you know there's there's just it's been so long that we've been waiting for a real threat to arise to lebron james in the eastern conference whichever team you know, we'll consider him the franchise since you know he individually went to the finals uh eight consecutive years between miami and cleveland and you know different contenders have come and gone some of them have been very good i think chicago you know if if derrick rose had not gotten injured in 2012 who knows how different you know the east might have looked for a few years there but now to have all of a sudden after lebron rise and, and surely not coincidentally because these are teams that you know are going all in now because of the fact that they sense an opportunity to get to the finals for the first time you know in many many years or first time ever in some of their cases uh in the toronto's case uh you know the, the, they all, all of a sudden you have four teams that look as strong as you know perhaps almost any of the teams that LeBron faced in recent years. It's fascinating also because of some of the structural elements that led to this. I mean, so for Milwaukee, the rise of Giannis, I mean, that opened the door for them to be there. Also, of course, the coaching upgrade, and we can talk about both of those. But you also have the Sixers and the Celtics who over previous years, let's say the last five years or so, had accumulated a lot of assets. And as the their improvement internally got there, then that gave them a greater incentive to push more for the present. Now, the Celtics didn't do that this year, but of course they traded for Kyrie Irving last year and they signed Gordon Hayward and all that. So I kind of put them in the same camp of where the natural trajectory was pushing them towards being a lot better right now. And at the same point, though, I... Part of the reason that LeBron made it to eight three finals, and yeah, he was he was awesome in the playoffs last year. They did benefit, like the narrative got cleaner because Kyrie Irving missed the playoffs. Because my belief is that the Celtics would have made the finals over the Cavs were it not for Kyrie Kyrie's injury last year. I mean, certainly they would have been a, a much more formidable opponent in the conference finals, and you know, last year's Cleveland team was not to the standards of the previous ones in, in large part because they didn't have Kyrie. Um, yeah, so I, th- I think all of that's accurate. I, we should probably pause here to mention we haven't talked at all yet about the Pacers who, you know, they 
they had a more modest deadline addition uh, immediately afterwards, signing Wesley Matthews to fill that void left by Victor Oladipo. Uh, they've won, I think, now five games in a row after initially stumbling, you know, following Oladipo's injury. And you started, you know, I I wrote after the trade that okay, I think they can be uh, an above five hundred team without Oladipo. They they had that nice run of going seven and four when he missed time in the month of uh, November and December earlier in the season. And then all of a sudden they come out and lose their first four. And you're like, oh, boy, uh, did we, are the Pacers, were the Pacers more dependent on Oladipo than we thought, including some pretty rough losses at Memphis, at Orlando. But now it's, it's in fact, six in a row, including you know blowouts over the Lakers and the Clippers in the past week here. And they – they are still third in the Eastern Conference, and you know, even though I don't know if they have the the high end talent to compete with these other teams in the playoff setting, they certainly, if they stay third, can throw a wrench into things by assuring that you know one of Philadelphia and Boston isn't even going to make it to the conference semifinals. Beyond that, them sticking at third, that right now, as you said, they're ahead of Boston and Philly in the loss column now. I don't necessarily expect that to continue, but you also would then theoretically put three of these top four teams on the same side of the bracket. So you would make a much easier path and a much greater incentive for whoever finished in second. Now, I think there's a a very serious chance that doesn't happen. I am thrilled that the Pacers have continued playing well. But the other thing that Indiana, that we, we should talk about this with them, and I'm happy Derek Bodner actually brought this up a little bit when I talked with him last week, is just how well they've played this year. I mean, so as of now, and remember this includes a significant amount of non-Oladipo time, both with this earlier season absence and now since he got hurt, using cleaning the glasses measure, which takes out garbage time, Indiana is currently fifth in net rating. They are ahead of Toronto. They are ahead of Denver, two teams that have, you know, probably more respect around. And they had a great, de- they had a great defense. They're still, you know, they had a, they had a big slip defensively right after Oladipo came out. I think that was a big part of it. But it does look like they're turning the corner now. So they will kind of be, to me, more of a dormant factor for this year. But then they could end up being really fascinating next year because there's so much uncertainty in the, in the Eastern Conference, including with them. But we shouldn't discount what they've done this year. No, I mean the one, the other factor working against them, they have the hardest remaining schedule of any of these, you know, teams in the the three through five range in the East, uh, according to ESPN's BPI uh, projections. The only East team with a harder schedule the rest of the way than the Pacers is Charlotte. So that's one factor that could kind of kind of affect their pursuit of staying in the third seat spot. But yeah, I, I mean. You know, this was the case last year when Indiana's success was somewhat more modest, and it remains the case this year. I watch them, and I to- don't totally understand how it is they're so successful. Uh, I think a lot of it is just playing hard every possession almost every night. I, I think that you know Nate McMillan deserves a great deal of credit for that. He's always been very good at getting his teams to uh, play through adversity. Uh, so maybe from that standpoint, it shouldn't be surprising that they've responded well to the Oladipo injury. You think back to his Portland teams that faced myriad injuries and you know always continued to stay right in the mix in the Western Conference, uh, even though they weren't able to translate and never winning a playoff series in that period because, again, the, the high-end talent wasn't necessarily there or healthy during the playoffs because of Brandon Roy's injuries. 
Um, and defensively, you know, they've got they've got a strong ring protector in Miles Turner, and they force a ton of turnovers. They almost never foul. Like there's a lot to like about what the Pacers are doing. I like that you brought up that they never foul. I have this theory in the back of my mind that teams that very rarely foul just don't often pop as much because it's it's a different way of like kind of ending possession. It's a different kind of stability. It's sort of like San Antonio never turning the ball over that you yep. don't even necessarily think about it, but it's a meaningful effect on the opponent. And so it, it makes life, you know, turning the ball over makes life a lot easier. It gives the other team all, all, the, all sorts of transition opportunities. Fouling is kind of the same thing. You know, you it's easy opportunities, you know, unless you're doing it intentionally. Hashtag NBA hacks. You're creating... <laughs> you're creating a a pretty significant advantage for the other team. You know, you're also giving guys a little bit of rest and that could be a factor in, in it for me at least, because like you see a lot of the teams there. So like San Antonio is in the same boat. I mean, Milwaukee this year, they're a great defense by some of the more conventional means as well. But the other thing that I think Indiana has it, partially due to the growth of Sabonis is I think they get 48 competent and usually much better than competent defensive minutes from the center position. And while that is not the same requirement that it used to be, I think that does really help them kind of stay above water. Yeah, I mean, it, it gives them a solid base for them to build their defense around. And then they've got a lot of players with great anticipation on the perimeter. You know, Thaddeus Young is so good at generating steals and I think uh, a very underrated part of what the Pacers are doing. He, you know, is just in the right place at both ends of the court, picks up a lot of garbage points that's way, that way on offense. And I don't mean that as a pejorative. It's a compliment because, you know, those are those are easy scores that, that count and are useful. Uh, while we're on the topic of avoiding fouls, uh, San Antonio also particularly good at that this year, which hasn't necessarily translated into good defense. But the number one in the league at that is the, the team atop the Eastern Conference, Milwaukee. San Antonio, there could be that parallel with their offense. Their offense is way better. That mitigating that negative is helping kind of keep them at a higher level. You know, that's not making them good, but it's making them less bad than they would have been otherwise. Yep. Yep. I mean, they definitely could be worse. Plenty more with Kevin Pelton to come, but first a message from Peter Millar. Peter Millar is a lifestyle brand that I was unfamiliar with, to be honest, before they became a a sponsor on the show. How it happened was I got a package of products at my door and I tried them on and and absolutely loved them. And then naturally it went from there that they were becoming a sponsor of the show. And that made me even more excited because it is great quality material and it's also really versatile. So you can wear it like the the polo shirts if you want something that, that breathes well, that moves well, but also is nice enough that you can wear it in more put together situations you totally can or if you want to you know if you're somebody who plays golf or something like that it's perfect for that and how peter millar does that is by partnering with the most skilled craftsmen and artisans in the world focusing in on the details that can be things like buttons and zippers while also maintaining a modern elegant and timeless style that looks good now and and will especially because the material is so good that will that will age well and i've noticed that with the stuff that i have it looks great when you wear it and you clean it. It still looks really, really good. And I've been absolutely thrilled with it. And if you want to check it out for yourself, the way you do that is you go to Peter Millar, M-I-L-L-A-R.com slash Real GM. By going through that, you tell them that you came from us, but also you get complimentary shipping and a free hat, which is awesome. Again, that URL is Peter Millar, M-I-L-L-A-R.com slash Real GM for that complimentary shipping and a free hat. Check it out. They have a wide variety of options and I've been very impressed with the ones that 
I've tried out so far, excited to to get more because it's just it's great stuff to have in your in your wardrobe and your arsenal. So check it out. Let's go to the Bucks. The Bucks are an absolutely fascinating team who has these extreme strengths and weaknesses, but the strengths are the most the most fascinating part to me because what they're the, to me the centerpiece of of what Milwaukee stands, what makes them stand out is their dominance at the rim. And so it's been a story this whole year and it kind of goes in a couple different directions. So offensively, they're just absolutely killing it. They get to the rim, not, not at will, but pretty dang close and are extremely effective there. And then they have the double of not only doing that on offense, but on defense, they're doing a great job of preventing opponents from getting to the basket and then making sure that those shots don't go in when they get there. I think offensively, it speaks to the value oftentimes of shooting more three-pointers, and the Bucks are shooting way more three-pointers, obviously. It is not even necessarily just that, that sh- those shots go in, but what it does to your two-point percentage. And obviously, to some extent, this is just because, well, if you don't shoot long twos, you're going to shoot a higher percentage on twos because a greater percentage of them are going to be around the rim. But you also, with that floor spacing, generate more driving lanes, more opportunities, and that's Giannis in isolation uh, is a lot of it, but then also, you know, maybe the ball swings clear out the backside and it's Malcolm Brogdon or Bledsoe or Chris Middleton driving to the basket and not facing a lot of help defense because of the way that Brooke Lopez is pulling the center out of the paint or just in general, the Bucks spacing ball movement has broken the opposing defense and, and broken them down so that they're not in position to help. So you add that all up. Milwaukee is making 57% of its two-pointers this year. I mean, the, their success offensively, really, even though as great as threes are, like they, they shoot a lower effective field goal percentage on threes than twos just because they're so amazing at shooting twos. That is remarkable. Another stat that I really like with the Bucks is that they are shooting more above the break threes than total mid-range shots. So <laughs> that's pretty remarkable. You just think about their proportions. So they're getting a lot of... They're, they're at... 42 percent of their shots are coming at the rim which is pretty amazing it's actually not number one in the league because the lakers are number one in the league but then basically it's it's those and then three pointers and they're not the greatest on threes but they're worth more than t- than twos and they're shooting that high percentage on twos. so that's how even though you know they're i was gonna say i was gonna make a, a quick critique on their personnel but no their personnel is, is totally great for this approach that they're second in the league in effective field goal percentage and the team that they're behind is the buzzsaw that is the golden state warriors and and that's with Without Nikola Meritage, who we've exactly. yet to see, because he's still dealing with that calf injury that uh, kept him out in New Orleans. So, you know, I guess he, I guess he probably won't play until after the All Star break. But very excited to see what they look like with Meritage in the mix. Miritich gives them flexibility to try a few different approaches. I don't think they're going to use it as much to to have Giannis defend small forwards because especially they they already have Middleton, they can do other other options, but he does give them a more versatile athletically option in case the Brook Lopez at center fade back approach doesn't work against the best opposition. And Milwaukee, I mean, I I still remember the game when Boston tore them up and basically the idea there was that they were getting, they're breaking the seal of, of the lane, getting, getting somebody to overhelp and then just in, just immediately passing it to the guy who the helper came from. And they were getting an open shot. Boston has a lot of good shooters. They were able to make that work. And the other way that a drop back system can get attacked is just by that player pulling up. If, if there's somebody in 
Milwaukee will benefit from an Eastern Conference that isn't that loaded for that specific strength. I mean, obviously Kyrie can do it, and depending on how he's feeling on that given day, Kyle Lowry and and Kawhi is a different thing. But there aren't the you know the Lillards, the Currys, those type of guys aren't as prevalent in the top of the Eastern Conference. So let's but let's say theoretically that that's creating problems. Well, Miritich isn't the same kind of defensive player, but he's a floor spacer. He can shoot those deep threes, maybe not as deep as as Robin Lo- as Brook Lopez. But I like that they have that. So then then you're probably technically going with Giannis at center, but I love that they have a different variant without really changing the offensive structure too much. I I would say that I've become a lot more optimistic about their chances of keeping Brooke Lopez on the court in the postseason. I mean, obviously that Celtics game was very visceral because of the fact that it was so overwhelming. Was it the NBA record for three-point attempts at that point? That sounds right. I don't remember for sure. Yeah. Uh, 55 of them and it was so early in the season we were still still sort of learning about the Bucks, and you know there was the skepticism of will they be able to keep it up now that we've got a couple months more data I mean three more you know yeah two and a half more months data uh, no three and a half more months data than at that point I I feel a lot better at it we've seen Brooke Lopez be able to stay on the court against Houston Uh, Houston took 48 threes in that game but the the Bucks were able to like completely prevent James Harden from getting to the rim. The the Rockets shot under thirty eight percent on twos in that game. That the the Bucks won in Houston in early January in the midst of that Harden run. Uh, we've and in general, you know, in games where they've allowed forty three, is they've given up forty three attempts fifteen times in games this year, which is a lot. But they're twelve and three in those games. And I mean, to some extent, that's maybe because of the fact that teams are more likely to shoot threes when they're trailing and trying to catch up. But you know, I think that's that's an encouraging indicator to me that you know this isn't necessarily going to be the same thing that we saw with Bud's defense. I mean, the the 2015 playoffs is probably the the most dramatic, or the 2016 playoffs, I should say, the second the year after they were so good is maybe the most dramatic example where the Cavs shot like 50 percent on threes in the second round and sweeping Atlanta. I, I don't feel like that's going to happen this time around. Along those lines. While the Bucks are giving up the highest proportion of opponent threes in the league, you know, as a, as a relation to the shots, there's the opponent's success rate is middle of the road. You know, 30, 37%, 36% is fine. Like, that's, you're not sitting there going, oh, that's totally unsustainable. And the Bucks are still have the league's best opponent effective field goal percentage. So they're able to, to make that work. A big part of that is the defense they've had at the rim and not giving up those value shots. But my concern there is just that when you, this is sort of the court is sort of the parallel idea to some a criticism I made of DeMar DeRozan in the past. It's just that once you narrow the field to just the most talented teams, they are going to have superior personnel to attack those sorts of flaws. They're going to have better shooters. They're going to have better perimeter players because that's how a team becomes good or great. I mean, the one thing we don't know about is how it's going to look when you face that, you know, night after night over a seven game series with the chance to make adjustments. But, you know, in general, Milwaukee has done quite well against the other top East teams, uh, earned the three and one record against Toronto when they beat them recently and, you know, uh, won the season series there. Uh, I, I think that, you know, that, that to me is, again, a positive indicator that this is not just a case of something that's, you know, the Bucks are able to do in the regular season, aren't going to sustain in the playoffs, but that it is something that has more staying power, um, especially because now they do have that, that flexibility, uh, not only with Miritich, but also DJ Wilson, who has been a revelation in his second season since he got healthy. That's true. How do you see his minutes being affected by, by this? It feels like he's going to be marginalized more. 
so I think Ilya Sova probably loses playing time. That's I, I, true. I think the Bucks are probably going to play Miritich a lot. Is a nominal. I'm using air quotes here. Small forward next to Giannis and just figure out the matchups based on what's out there because of the fact that their their wing rotation is not as deep as their front court rotation. That makes a lot of sense, and Boonholzer would be willing to do that. I don't think there would be a big problem there. And also, there aren't that many teams with such a dangerous small forward that Miritich, Giannis, the, the no, that nobody can handle that. Now, there might be specific teams, specific nights that that could be a challenge, but other than that, it should be okay. Let's jump to Toronto. Oh, sorry, do you have anything on that? No. Let's jump to Toronto. I think Toronto made the most intellectually compelling trade acquisition to me of of these top teams, you know, the Tobias, well, in terms of on court, I mean, the Tobias Harrison, there are lots of things we could talk about there. But Marcus Gasol gives them a different wrinkle, and that wrinkle will work really well against, especially the Sixers. I mean, I, th- I think that he is, if, if they end up facing Philly in a series, that he will be an absolute godsend. I'm a little bit concerned about Nurse using Gasol, being a little bit too liberal with him, just because there are so many other in- useful, dangerous options that Toronto has, but I have been encouraged at the experimentation that the Raptors have done early. I think I saw something that Gasol in two games, or maybe it's three, has already played in 25 different lineups, which is exciting because Toronto has to figure out exactly what they have in him because while he and Valanciunas are both, you know, they have certain like kind of shady outline characteristics that are the same, their specific skills are meaningfully different. Yeah, particularly the playmaking and floor spacing that Gasol provides. I mean, you know, Jonas had added a bit of a, a three-point element at times, but that's that's never going to be as big a strong suit with him as it is for Gasol. And, you know, then just defensively, Gasol is more versatile, better overall. I mean, it, it is an upgrade in basically every way other than maybe post-scoring from, you know, what they were getting from from Jonas. But uh, uh, what what concerns me is the possibility that, like, they go too much to Ibaka at power forward in, in market center because I, I – I just don't know about that lineup in the in the context of the postseason. Um, I I like you know Siakam getting as many minutes as possible at the four and and then maybe small ball outside of that. And the question is then is there enough minutes if you look at Ibaka almost exclusively as a five for him and Gasol at that position? Probably not enough to keep both of them happy, and that's why Ibaka might spill over into the four. And there are ways to make that work. But remember, I mean, we were we were getting all excited partially due to Toronto's wing depth and just the personnel they have about, like the idea of Kawhi Leonard playing some at power forward, but partially the the emergence of Siaka made that less necessary because you have a different guy that, that fits a lot of those boxes and can play well with Kawhi. But yeah, that that is a concern for me. And Toronto doesn't have, a, I, I wouldn't say that they have a ton of wing depth right now, but they do have wing quality. I mean, Kawhi and Danny Green is still just a monstrous combination. For sure. I mean, that's that's a great combination. And then, you know, the the big hit to their depth in that trade was losing uh, losing DeLon Wright as an option, primarily at the two as an emergency point guard, you know, when Van Vliet or, or Lowry is unavailable. So that's what made signing Jeremy Lin, especially with Van Vliet out for a while, uh, so important. When they get him in a, in a uh, Raptors uniform after he clears waivers, that's, that's a terrific pickup and, and probably has to be considered part of their deadline haul. It was surprising to me just because 
there had been that preliminary reporting that the the Hawks did not intend to to buy out Jeremy Lin, and that made intuitive sense to me. I mean, the the Hawks are a young team. He was providing value as a mentor. They played so much better over the last month or so, especially since John Collins got back. And then for it to turn so quickly when they didn't trade for him, didn't get anything of value in a deal, and then he goes, okay, and there are a lot of point guard needy teams. Then he, it's basically not only is he bought out, but he's going to sign with the Raptors. And then we also get the news that Fred Van Vliet is out for three weeks due to uh, a ligament issue. I believe it's in his thumb. So all the pieces fit together. It just happened so quickly that it was jarring. It did. I mean, it makes sense as a place that Lynn would want to go as a chance to compete in the playoffs. He, you know, hasn't been in the mix for a few years here, and you know, a, a place where he experienced part of uh, his greatest triumph during Linsanity. The chronology almost is perfect. I mean, that was a Valentine's Day game that was so memorable. I believe he hit the game winner there beyond also having a big game. And I think his his next uh, his first game as a Raptor could be on Valentine's Day itself. Is that right? They they play then. They do not. No, they play. A, they play Wednesday the thirteenth, and then they don't play again, and then that's their last game for All Star break. So it probably won't be then, but it's it's close enough that I'll make it thematically appropriate. <laughs> Lots more to talk about with Kevin Pelton, but first a message from our friends at BetOnline.ag. I'm going to talk later in the show a little bit with Dave Mason of BetOnline about a different topic, but this is a really fun weekend for NBA fans if you're into it for BetOnline.ag because All-Star Weekend is an entirely different format, lots of things going on. Not only the All-Star Saturday night activities, you know, if you have a favorite for the dunk contest or the three-point contest, the stacked field for the three-point contest, including both Curry brothers, reigning champion Devin Booker, lots of other great people, but also if, if you think you have a read on some of the less bright lights, like let's say the MVP of the Rising Stars game or an MVP for the All-Star game itself, you can absolutely do that as well. And it's fun because they're wide open fields. And since there is not a specific, you know, like time pressure and you're not seeing like, oh, you know, these players and all that kind of stuff, those are already on the board right now. So even though the events are over the weekend, if you think you have an early read on this person's going to be awesome, you can engage in that right now. And how you do it is you go to betonline.ag, use the promo code podcast one for a 50% sign up bonus. You can also try out in-game live betting, which I, I actually did for the first time pretty recently. Really enjoyed it. If you get a read on a first half and say, hey, I know I know where this game is going, you can use betonline.ag to check it out. And again, use that promo code podcast one to tell them that you came from us and also to get a 50% sign up bonus. Betonline.ag, your online sportsbook experts. But so okay, so with Toronto I want to also see, I'm trying to get a visual on how their playoff rotation is going to work. They have a lot of good players, and especially if Norman Powell can take a step up, he's been better over the last little while. So I don't think losing CJ Miles hurts them. That if if they can run like a nine-man rotation, I think they'll be okay. But just figuring out which combinations of those nine make sense together, the good fortune being, though, that in the playoffs you can play your best players more, and that will kind of ease some of the transitions because if you can play Danny Green more, if you can play Kawhi more, some of those lineups will sing a little bit better. I still think to me the most important question Toronto has to answer is how Kawhi kind of integrates within the larger offense. And we've we've seen them have been kind of shockingly be kind of shockingly successful in games that Kawhi misses this year because they go back to, you know, more of that style that they played with the second unit last year. The ball was moving a great deal, shooting a ton of threes, everybody's involved. And it, it kind of looks better than the more ISO heavy offense with Kawhi in the mix because, you know, it's, it's kind of a, 
It's kind of the Raptors have their default offense and then their Kawhi offense. Now, that's certainly very valuable. We saw uh, Monday night against the Nets down the stretch. Like his ability to get and you know, not a great look, but a good look in isolation in late game situations is a huge difference, I think, for this Raptors team in the postseason from, you know, where DeMar DeRozan did struggle against the best defenders, as you alluded to earlier. Um, but, you know, they, you want to have that in your back pocket to go to down the stretch, but I still think you want to have him more integrated into kind of the, the fuller ball movement offense over the course of the 48 minutes. Losing DeLon Wright, and this is a point that that Nate made when we recorded after the deadline, it does take away some of their burst, their their co- athletic combustibility, and, and that idea that Toronto can has to put out those frenetic lineups. You know, Jeremy Lin is a wonderful basketball player, but he, he brings different strengths to the table, and it seems like, especially with Gasol now, that this is more in that kind of Kawhi Gasol mold than the the go-go Raptors, which we've seen at various moments over the last couple of years. Yeah, especially if you're playing Mark with the second unit, which has played you know kind of a little different than the starters. It will depend on opponent, but what is your instinct? You know, not talking right now because there there's integration that needs to happen and, and so many other things. What is your instinct for facing, let's call it an average opponent, because there are specific ones that you think is the best five that Toronto can put out there? I think it's probably. I would probably lean slightly towards Gasol instead of Ibaka in the middle, Siakam at the four, and then the, the the rest of the starters. It is a close call between those two. I mean, it's it's not like Ibaka is the twenty two year old or twenty five year old that was that moved so well that that you could oh you could switch everything you're not going to get any problems. But I do like some of the some of the kind of like tone elements that he can bring that the players can can push a little bit more in that direction. They can attack a little bit more. But Mark's passing does really open things up, and the guys are getting more comfortable. I'm watching in the earlier portions of that Nets game. One of the benefits of playing Gasol with the second unit is just having those guys cut all the time, and that because you can get open, he can he can work as a hub, and that could end up working pretty well with even with the Raptors starter personnel in those half court sets when sometimes they stagnate. I don't know. Do you think Danny Green and Kawhi are going to know what to do with uh, a, a big man who can pass and trying to cut off of that and make plays? They never had to deal with it before, even even when it had the same name on the back of the jersey. Though it <laughs> yes. didn't always. They've used other guys as well. But yes, I, I'm excited to see how the Raptors evolve. But the team that is going to be the most fun of these four for me to watch over the next few months, you know, the two months basically until the playoffs start, are the Philadelphia 76ers, and that is because they went through the biggest change. You know, basically, in the starting lineup, the transition that happened was going from Wilson Chandler to Tobias Harris. That is a huge change for a bunch of reasons that we've already seen and will only continue moving forward. I'm, yes, and I just you look at the scale of change over the course of the season. I mean, the Sixers only have eight of their 15 players were on their roster when they started the season. That's the kind of thing you usually see with a team that's rebuilding and just shuffling the deck, not a team that you know won a playoff series last year and aspires to get to the NBA Finals this year. So, you know, that's a that's a pretty uh, massive amount of change to throw at Brett Brown, and and so far since the deadline, since Tobias Harris and, and the other new guys have become available, like they've handled incredibly well, which I think is testament to how kind of portable Tobias Harris's skills are. Harris 
has a lot of success, especially this year at the Clippers. I mean, he's grown so much over the last couple of years with the ball in his hands, and that will just happen less on Philadelphia because they have a lot of guys who do that. And more importantly for the Sixers, they have players who provide significant, the margin between them on and off ball is, is larger. And so in those circumstances, just as a value proposition, you know, you want Ben Simmons on the ball more because he's, except sometimes he's a cutter and a screener, he just can do a lot more. And then he he, he did take that three again in the Lakers game, and so we'll, we'll see. If, I don't think that's going to be particularly predictive, at least for this year. But Harris is very useful for the Sixers because even if that part of his game scales down, he can still be a productive, dangerous player. And then should the need arise, whether that's attacking closeout or you're in a stagger and he, or maybe he has the best matchup because we've seen them hunting point guards and various other things, he can be somebody you rely on. You just don't have to as much. Yeah, I think what you're getting at is the uh, the idea of the law of comparative advantage, where yes. you don't necessarily go to who's the most skilled with the ball. You want to go to who's the relatively most skilled with the ball as, a pair, as opposed to off the ball. And that's where, yeah, I think Harris's skills fit well because the, that ratio, like you said, is relatively small. And with the Sixers, I, this is something that it is a benefit of covering games live just because you get this sense of just how big people are are you know just are physically because you know listed heights especially if people use that like those are they can be fudged and because like strength and all those sorts of elements are there this philadelphia team especially now with tobias harris they're just really big and that creates these matchups that coaches are going to freak out about like ben simmons and people go oh like part of the reason why i i get reluctant and i've been so vehement about not calling him a point guard even though you know he is a primary ball handler is because the dude is 610 like he is a power forward in terms of size i actually think you could theoretically eventually see him defend centers depending on what they what like what part of his body he wants to emphasize and all that kind of stuff so if if the other team wants to say oh he's the point guard you want to guard him with a point guard ben simmons is going to put that guy in the damn basket and so coaches have kind of learned that over time and then you move that player on other people and now with tobias harris there it gets even harder to hide your smallest players and have them be basically anything productive defensively that you get at the end there to a point i wanted to make which yeah there's not a lot of hiding spots because you know maybe you can stick someone on simmons with the idea that you're going to dare him to shoot and play off him like they like the lakers did with lebron the other day but you know the sixers have counters to that simmons is a a screener uh putting him in the post all those sorts of things uh, so, you know, you're really compelled to have a lineup that can match up with the Sixers starters that doesn't have any weak or even, you know, just too many undersized defenders. I mean, Toronto, I think, matches up pretty well. You know, you can put Lowry on Redick and then you've got, you know, Danny Green has always been able to defend bigger players. Uh, Boston probably also fits that pretty well. You know, Marcus Smart is not going to uh, worry about a size advantage against anyone. He'd probably feel comfortable defending Simmons in the post, even though he's giving up like six inches. So those two teams do match up reasonably well. Maybe, maybe from that standpoint, you know, we should be thinking of, uh, the Sixers as one of those teams that is going to be you know, more effective in the regular season when they're going up against weaker defensive opponents than they are against the the best East competition. That's a great point. I hadn't really thought about it yet, and and their size just defensively can end up can end up doing more work because it just makes it harder to finish. But yeah, there there will be matchups to exploit the personnel, and they have all these different places to turn in case things aren't working. And and you got into something in terms of Ben Simmons as a screener that I wanted to discuss. I think we're seeing this as a necessary wrinkle for these non-shooters 
that are good enough at everything else that they stay on the floor. And there's been this idea, Draymond Green, I mean, I'm in the Bay Area, so I watch more of their games than than any other team, also due to my obligations. And the idea of Portland did this very well, numerous other teams Dallas has, of just like leaving the guy off of Draymond Green. Well, the easiest counter to that is to use that player not as a ball handler, but as a handoff guy, as a screener, because if the other player is fading that far back, especially for somebody like Draymond, and I think Ben Simmons is going to become a much better screener in time as well, you're creating basically an open shot. And so then you have to bring the other guy up, not so much because you're worried about the, the guy shooting, but because you can't give up something to the, to the complement player in the two-man action. And I think a big part of that is just making that kind of an automatic setting as opposed to something that, you know, kind of you're having to think about because of the fact that the defense is catching you off guard or surprising you with that strategy. Right. And that's not a particularly hard thing to kind of code in there. You can see how far away the guy is from you. And especially teams that have multiple good, I don't know, I, I kind of think of those, if you're going to shoot it straight off the hand up, to me, that's kind of closer to a pull-up shot than to a catch-and-shoot, depending on how good you are at setting your feet. Now, if it's JJ Redick, they're basically the same thing because he's insane. But I w- I'm going to be really interested to see kind of where the, the chess game goes from there, because now that that is kind of an obvious adjustment, where will the defense go from there? Right. What's what's kind of the next layer there? Yeah. I mean, I, they're certainly not going to be that easy to defend. You know, it's a, you're not going to come up with a magic strategy that is going to uh, kind of solve the Sixers because they're they're too good and, and too deep. Agreed. Not, not too deep in terms of threats in their starting five. Their 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 bench still somewhat limited. Their bench is limited, and we'll see how they if they can how they improve with time. Their uh, my read right now is that the buyout market is not going to be particularly potent. Maybe they hope that they can get more from Jonathan Simmons, from James Ennis, two guys that they kind of picked up on flyers as a part of other deals. Also, not having any remote pressure to play Marco Fultz, though I think with how good they are now that they weren't going to have faced that pressure this season anyway. It's just it more took away noise for them than anything else. But before we kind of move on from these teams, because I think this is such such a big story in the NBA moving forward, is just preliminarily, because there's still a lot of story to be told here, how would you rank these teams in terms of, I, I guess maybe the most fair way to do this isn't team quality, it's just likelihood of making the NBA finals? Do you, do, does that seem like a fair metric to use right now? Yeah, I think so, because you want to incorporate in the fact that, you know, the 4-5, the if if Philly or you know, Boston gets stuck in the four or five matchup against each other. Uh, but particularly because they're not likely to have home court advantage in the second round. Either way, that's a, that's a tougher road for, uh, Philadelphia and Boston. So, you know, an advantage for Milwaukee and Toronto. So I still think I have it in that order. Milwaukee, Toronto. I might, I might lean Philly over Boston, but I don't want to feel like I'm overreacting too much to the results of the last couple of games, which have been positive for the Sixers and obviously not so positive for the Celtics. It probably isn't fair, especially because the Bucks have been the best team in the league so far this year. I just think that as as this shakes out, Kawhi is going to take a, you know get back more to what he was defensively. I love what Danny Green can do in a series. I'm I'm going Raptors over Bucks, but it's so close. And and obviously playoff matchups and all that stuff can can go in there. And then I see a little bit of a margin. And then I'm going to go Celtics over Sixers for now. I just need to see more from Philly. And I like how many different capable players Boston has. Like they can they can do some of the identity shifts that at least for the time being, but probably overall Philly just can't really do. But Philly has their best five, and then. 
the other pieces that they can theoretically throw in don't particularly give them different looks that are useful against the best teams. Like TJ McConnell, his lack of of three-point shooting is something that I could see certain teams exploiting. Now, he's a wonderful pull-up guy. He competes on defense, but especially when we talked about the the relative size of all these teams, that's another factor here. Also, Boban, I think, is borderline unplayable in those kind of high-leverage series, and they don't really have other options. I mean, Jonah Bolden, if he can get there and be more consistent, he's had some nice games. I've been impressed with Bolden. And so for me, Boston just has more options. You know, Jalen Brown has has been a lot better over the last months after the tough start to the season. Marcus Smart has, of course, stepped up. Marcus Morris is doing well. And Gordon Hayward, I'm hopeful that he can be a better player than he has been so far. I mean, that hope for this year is waning over just because you're kind of sitting there going, oh, well, every day, you know, gets him further from the injury. But there's a lot of, there's a lot of ground between where he is now and a, a more reliably productive player, which is the threshold for, you know, reliable, consistent playoff minutes. But I just like that Boston has a lot more options. I think backup center is still the place that Philly could probably improve most easily yep. on the buyout market. I mean, maybe if they wanted to go super small, they could consider Philly native Markeith Morris in that spot. Uh, Dwayne Dedman was kind of the natural fit. Someone who actually played for the Sixers back during the, the hinky days, but uh, did not stick around as they were uh, loading up on, on too many centers early in the draft and didn't realize quite how good he was going to be. He's got that $900,000 bonus in his contract uh, based on uh, he's already close to the game's played number, I think, but uh, needs to assure that he's going to average a certain uh, number of points and rebounds per game. Maybe, you know, if we get closer to March 1st and it starts to look like he's built up enough playing time with the Hawks that he's going to hit that even if he plays less in Philadelphia, maybe then, you know, you can convince him to take a buyout and come over. Uh, that would be a, a really nice upgrade for them. Agreed. And I would love to see them get one more wing option as well. The problem is I don't know who's going to hit the buyout market now. Now that Wayne Ellington and local product, oh, sorry, local product Wayne Ellington and Wes Matthews are both off the market. You know, those guys, and I have no problem whatsoever with them choosing starting reliable playing time over, you know, being on a playoff team, having a chance to win a championship. And you could, especially because that sets up their next contract better. But those two guys not going to a contender does really weaken the options that are remaining for all of these two to four needy teams, which I would say includes Philly and of course also includes the Houston Rockets. Yeah, I think you have to assume based on the fact that Philly was willing to pick up Ennis from Houston and fill the roster spot that way, that they had a pretty good idea that, you know, those guys weren't coming at that point and that they were going to have to look to trade instead of the buyout market to, to upgrade on the wing. Uh, you know, I, I think you'd probably rather have either Ellington or Matthews than Ennis in Philadelphia, given given their steel gill sets. But, uh, you know, they, they did upgrade a little bit. Um, yeah, it'll, it'll be interesting to see if anyone else shakes out. Uh, should we talk more about the Celtics? We haven't really gotten into them specifically. Yeah, let's do it. So the Celtics, I think their their fundamentals, just like their personnel, their execution is strong. And the kind of the, the fuzzy stuff doesn't look good with them, but I'm not as concerned about that because they're so talented that they should end up winning games. And there are teams that, you know, the Marcus Morris talking about, you know, like we're not having as much fun and all that kind of stuff. That, that, that doesn't really matter. It can be the canary in the coal mine for various teams. But I think Boston is so damn talented that it's not that big of a, of a thing, especially 
partly because if assuming Kyrie is healthy enough to play, and that is a, a genuine concern considering his history of knee stuff, that I think they'll be able to work through all of this. And it is, to me, it's more chaff than wheat. To me, you know, the unhappiness is somewhat more an effect of the fact that they've lost games than a cause of it. Like, look, no, Celtics have high expectations, understandably so. I mean, they were probably too high because of the fact that, you know, people took too much from their playoff run, which is, you know, short series against teams that were not really actually all that good compared to this year's top East teams. Uh, Jackie McMullen made a good point yesterday on the Hoop Collective podcast that, look, if, if you dropped last year's Celtics into this year's playoffs, uh, even if you took out the Celtics, like they, they might not even, you know, win a series. They probably wouldn't get to the the conference finals, and they almost certainly wouldn't get within a game of the NBA finals, just because the East has gotten so much better over that span and and healthier than it was this time a year ago. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's a lot of a lot of the concerns, a lot of the reasons for unhappiness are things that actually don't turn out to be that predictive. Um, you know, inconsistency from game to game. Uh, the the fact that you know they've they've played poorly in certain quarters. Um, the fact that their record hasn't matched up to their point differential. I mean, it's not just a matter of talent. They have been producing well in terms of the overall point differential. It just hasn't translated into wins and losses. Right. Uh, and, and especially, like, I, I know the, the Sixers game, or sorry, not the Sixers game, the Clippers game was this, you know, kind of felt like a big moment. Oh, they had this big collapse. Boston isn't nearly as good when Kyrie Irving doesn't play. This is not an emergency situation. That's just a reality. Their offense relies heavily on what he can do, and that is concerning. But if you were to tell me, you know, Kyrie is going to be unavailable for portion X of a series against a good team, then Boston would be significant underdogs during that period of time. Yeah, understandably so. But uh, and and the challenge here is, as much as I believe in Boston in terms of their fundamentals, I like the other two teams, you know, Toronto and Milwaukee better. And depending what we see from Philadelphia the next couple months, I might like them better too. So, you know, they could be a very good team, much improved from last season and still fourth in the East. What's been in the background of this whole conversation, but is just so compelling, so fascinating to me is how, even if those, you know, you talked about how the expectations game and everything else for Boston and in, in a certain world that wouldn't, those things wouldn't matter as much, you know, that, hey, like, we're facing a better group of teams. The problem with that is we're going into a massive free agency class that includes members of all four of these top teams, and how they perceive the results in many ways are more important than a more objective perception of what happened. Yep. I mean, and that's maybe the transition from, as I said earlier, there's the two paths. There's the short-term implications of what happened at the deadline, and then there's the long-term implications in NBA terms, long-term being five months from now in free agency, uh, which which seems like forever uh, at this point. But, you know, there are hugely important ramifications, like you said, from the, what shakes out in the playoffs this year. And then also from what we saw leading up to the deadline from the Clippers and the Knicks, you know, the Clippers not necessarily creating that much more cap space because Tobias Harris was already going to be a free agent at uh, at season's end. It's really only the uh, the two million dollar guaranteed portion of Avery Bradley's contract that they got off of, but they ensured that if they do in fact go out and sign a couple max free agents, they're going to have even more. Uh, you know, assets to surround them with talent, whether it be young players getting Landry Shamit or the first round picks that they now have coming from the Sixers. 
Uh, and then, of course, the Knicks opening up that cap space in addition to getting a couple of first-round picks and Dennis Smith Jr. It also puts into stark relief the idea, I've been using a musical chairs analogy the last couple of days, which is basically that now with the Knicks clearing two slots, the Clippers having a, a cleaner path to two spots, but also becoming less likely to use one of those to retain their own guys. Like, I mean, obviously they could just keep Gallo and all those things, things is that it's to me there are going to be more people without a chair when the music stops and that just ratchets up the risk for all of these teams because there are more options and when you have more options there's variability and the nick sales pitch is different i mean you can because i've always found the allure of two max spots very powerful because you can you can pitch more things on that it's not hey you have to like the guys that you're playing with you have to like our market it's you have to like our market and all that stuff and we can at the same time find somebody else or you can maybe help negotiate that and I just think there's a there's real potency there, and to have potentially two teams, both in major markets, one that is like the kind of the historical team in their market, one that is not, have that ability is something that should scare these these talented players, the teams that have them right now. It should scare them because that is a different kind of sales pitch, and we've seen them be successful in the past. Yeah, it's a you know you're not p- just picking your destination; you're also getting to help pick who you play with and, and influence that aspect of it it's become i think you know increasingly like 2010 in terms of you know that year also you had a number of teams that had you know room for two or or maybe even at that point three max free agents because of the the way the cap was a little different at that point and you know one of those teams miami manages to create uh, a mini dynasty that would go on to to win two championships there, and you know then New York gets Amari Stoudemire and eventually Carmelo Anthony and wins one playoff series in the next five years. So you know that there are two very different paths that you can go down that uh, that are available because the, the the increase in the number of max spots available doesn't correspond to the in, an increase in the number of max free agents. That's still the same number. It is still the same number, and there was an, kind of an easy narrative for a lot of these guys, Kawhi, Kyrie, and Kevin Durant being the most obvious, that why would you leave a team that is so great that can offer you more money than anyone else? You know, really, for those guys, it's more about the fifth year than anything else because the per season raises, you know, it helps, but it's not that huge. And one of the ways that you can do that is just by really doing a wholesale change, but also still being a very competitive team. Now, you've written well about the hypothetical Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, Knicks teams and and how they would have some depth issues and it would probably take some time to sort it out. But players, and I think we saw this a little bit with LeBron, if they can sell themselves on it, on there being maybe a a short, maybe a painful adjustment period, but then getting to be a, a, a serious contender, then that's, you know, that's a sales pitch that can actually work on guys. And so while it is almost definite that Kevin Durant, if he leaves the Warriors, will be on a team that is worse than the Warriors would have been with him. If that drop-off is either actual or perceived to be smaller, that makes it more palatable. And you've also got to think that, you know, look, these are superstar players who have very high opinions of their value and are probably going to think, you know, look, if I'm if I'm there and we have another superstar, 
we can make these other players around us better. We can lift them into competition. Now, they may or may not be right about that. I think, you know, LeBron James's uh, expectations for this year's Lakers uh, odds are, you know, without knowing what was actually in his head, that they were probably a little bit too high for what they could do with this particular cast. And, and that's probably led to some frustration over the course of this season. But, you know, I don't think that's necessarily going to stop other players from also having those high expectations about themselves. An additional factor, we don't need to spend a lot of time on it, but I'm going to be very interested in is some of the kind of more peripheral max teams, like the Brooklyn Nets are a really good example here, where they can make a case. I mean, it's an organization that, and this is shocking considering what they've been before, that, you know, they have a coach that is very well liked around the league. The front office has done a good job. They've been very patient with it. Seems like a team that would be fun to play for, in a, like the Clippers, in a major market, but not necessarily the team in that major market. And maybe the concept of being the guy on a very good team is for certain players. I don't know why in my head this is Jimmy Butler, but it is that that is persuasive for them. And I've written a fair amount about the human element. LeBron's decision in 2010 has completely changed the way that I thought about free agency. And one of the ideas is just understanding that different players value and prioritize different things. And so I'm interested in some of those alternate sales pitches that are a little bit different. And then also kind of along those lines, when there aren't enough chairs for how many people are playing the game, how do those teams respond? You brought up the Amari Stoudemire one. Like, does how does Kemba Walker feel about that? Like, is he is he really going to just re up with Charlotte before seeing if one of these teams gets a star and then doesn't get a second one and says, "Hey, Kemba, come join our team"? Yeah, we'll see. I mean, that's that's gonna be interesting to watch. Um, you know, I think that the Nets, yeah, they they are a really intriguing option, and enough people who are in the know have mentioned, "Hey, keep an eye on the Nets." Hey, think about the Nets that, you know, I'm paying attention for one that I, I'm not ruling out their chances of getting in the mix for, you know, one of these guys that maybe we're not expecting to, to end up there. Lots more to talk about with Kevin Pelton, but first a message from Art of Sport. Art of Sport is built around a very interesting, logical idea, and that is we all focus on the importance of what you wear and what you put into your body because it's well designed to make you help look, feel, and perform your best. And Art of Sport believes that what you put on your skin every day should do the same. So they have designed a series of better for you products that perform better. And something else that I really like about it, you can go to artisport.com, use the promo code REALGM, and what you get for that is you get 50% off a trial kit plus free shipping. And the trial kit has a lot of really awesome things in it. I've tried all of them out myself and they're great products. They're products that I use every day. And you don't think about that necessarily with skincare, but you should. And the deodorant is fantastic. I, it's now my go-to. I got two different scents, and I, I like both of them. You can check that out. They're fueled with matcha, citrus, and pear scents. They work really well. They smell good. Body Bar is excellent. Soap can be kind of a minefield in terms of in terms of overpowering smells and everything else. I was really impressed with it. Great sunscreen, and also a hair and body wash, which is a two-in-one formula, aloe vera, tea tree oil, so you can check it out. And... I like that it's a variety of products too. I was anticipating, because what's often with these is you find one or two things that you like and then those go into your repertoire. And I've been really happy with everything that I've tried from Art of Sport. Really high quality stuff. So if you want to treat your skin with respect, go to artofsport.com, use the promo code REALGM, 50% off a trial kit, 
plus free shipping. Artisport.com, real GM promo code. Also have a message from our friends at TrueCar. Every car comes with its share of stories. That ding in your bumper when you nervously picked up a first date, the luxury package you got after a big promotion, or the mileage you saved by riding your bike all summer. While you cannot put a price tag on your stories, now with TrueCar, you can at least find out what your car is worth when it's time to sell or trade it in. Just go to TrueCar, simply enter your license plate number, and watch how your car's details pop up. Then answer a few questions. Navigation and moonroof? Watch as they bump up your value. High mileage? You already knew it was going to cost you, but now you know how much it dings your wallet so you can plan ahead. Once you are finished, you get a true cash offer sent in minutes, which you can take to a local certified dealer to cash out or trade in. So when you're ready to experience a better way to sell or trade in your car, check out TrueCar today. True cash offer, not available in all states. Another team that I'm genuinely fascinated in terms of where they are when the music stops is the Lakers because LA has LeBron James and LeBron, you know, if not the best player in the world, certainly in the short list. And I mean, he was the best player in the playoffs last year. So it's it's not a big leap to say that he can be there again. It's just this season's been weird. He'd been injured, sustained like a real injury for the first time in his career. And we might be overrating that because we're too close to it right now. But Playing with LeBron James is a very specific thing, and I, I think that we're learning. One of the the parts that I'm enjoying about LeBron changing teams again is that we're seeing what elements of that story, especially for life with him as a teammate, are the same in various different locations. And the the best of the best are going to have a lot of options. Now there is no I you, I have no problem if, if anybody wants to choose to play with LeBron James, play on the Lakers glamour franchise. Great city to live in if you value what LA brings to the table. That There's an easy sales pitch there. But considering how a lot of these guys think about their identities, I think there's an underappreciated chance that of the best of the best, you know, like there's a line between them, like I would say that line is above Tobias Harris, somewhere in that range, that there's a chance that none of those guys just, just end up with the Lakers. And that would be crazy too. I mean, not just a chance. I feel like it's probably the most likely outcome, depending. Yeah, I, you know, I, whether we're I'd say it's a yeah, I'd say it's over fifty percent right now. Of the if we're if we're narrowing the field to just like let's say KD, Kawhi, Kyrie, we can include Jimmy Butler, I guess. Am I missing anybody? Oh, Clay. Kemba. I think we can we can have Clay there. You're putting Kemba in there too. Uh, I'd have I'd have Kemba in that kind of next tier down because I mean Kemba has. Wait, you think Kemba's behind Tobias Harris? No, no, no. I have Tobias Harris oh. and, and Kemba Walker in that lower tier. Okay. You know, guys, yeah, guys said- that guys that can't be to me that that can't be the best player on a really good team, and and maybe we should even have Clay down there too. Clay's just so versatile. He's just like he's the he's like the perfect secondary player. So he's that kind of makes him a different kind of guy. I don't know. But yeah, like, Kim has certainly had a better season than Clay. I that's mean, that's I, for, I think that's for sure. Yeah. So so let, let's drop Clay. Let's better. drop Clay too. So it's just Kawhi, Kem, Kawhi, Jimmy Butler, Kyrie Irving, Kevin Durant, and Jimmy Butler. Like so so I would say yeah, over fifty percent chance none of those guys go to the Lakers this summer. I mean, I think we could include the Tobias Clay, uh, uh, Kemba. Tier, I don't think it's really changing the outcome. I don't think, you know, most likely one of those players is going there either. So, yeah, I mean, it's going to be fascinating to see. Like, will the Celtics have already, you know, been able to make enough of a push to get Anthony Davis at that point? You know, if, will Anthony Davis still have to be there out there for them to pursue? Do they become kind of more desperate in that search? Or do you say, okay, well, you know, if the Pelicans are still asking too much or they trade him to, to Boston uh, and we can't get one of these top guys, well, let's roll it over, try to find some one-year deals. Maybe you end up dealing Brandon Ingram because of the fact that his rookie contract is going to be up. 
um, and then pursue Anthony Davis in the summer of 2020. Absolutely a possibility. They could also turn in, in other directions depending on, you know, they might become, uh, because of all these assets they have, they could theoretically trade for somebody else. You know, they could they could theoretically be a destination for Damian Lillard, let's say, if he says, I want out and Portland values those guys. I'm not saying that's going to happen. It's just something that's been floating around in my brain. And with the Lakers, waiting is actually a much less, theoretically, would be a much less palatable thing because they are the team of these, you know, potential behemoths that has the oldest star. Right. But they might not, you know, necessity might be the mother of invention there because if you, you can't make people say yes. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be a fascinating choice for them because, you know, I, I understand the security of Anthony Davis. It makes a lot of sense why they'd want to pursue him now. And, you know, to play with LeBron, well, he's still closer to his prime. I thought that, you know, I made the case on ESPN Plus that they were offering too much for Davis before the trade deadline that, you know, would have made it almost impossible for them to compete at a championship level because of the fact that they would have had so little left around in Anthony Davis-LeBron core over the next couple of years here. Um, you know, do they eventually decide that and think that, you know, our young players are valuable enough and, uh, you know, even if it's not necessarily keeping them, maybe it's trading them in some sort of other deal. Uh, Brian Windhorst raised that possibility today in terms of finding pieces that might be more, uh, more amenable to the, uh, the Pelicans might be more amenable to including in an Anthony Davis trade than the Lakers young players specifically. Those sorts of deals would be very hard on a short timeline, especially if you haven't already been talking about, let's say, Lonzo Ball and Brandon Ingram to various teams, because you were always saving those for a bigger trade. And and the idea of, you know, moving those pieces and then having your return end up going to New Orleans is something that can happen in the offseason, especially if it involves draft picks, because at that point, those become specific commodities. It is not like now, especially with lottery reform, where having the ninth best lottery odds is something that we can't, like, you can put a finger on it mathematically, but I think teams aren't exactly there yet. But if it's the ninth pick, okay, we know what that is. We know in this draft, whatever a team's board looks like and everything else. And, you know, hopefully a team doesn't do what the Nets did and say, this is a three-team draft. We don't, we don't <laughs> care about anything else. But that will facilitate a lot of this. And that's why I have a piece that's coming out for The Athletic on Tuesday, maybe Wednesday, about how I think that's when the Boston negotiations are really going to kick in. Because even though it's not going to be all draft assets, some of it will be there. And at that point, you know, at least the Sacramento pick, possibly the Memphis pick, their own will be specific numbers. And they will also not have been selected yet. And so that gives a potential trade partner a lot more control over the process. And we know from history that that control is valuable and desirable for trade partners. I mean, there's just so many pivot points coming for the league over the next five months here and you know it's going to start i think with the eastern conference playoffs and how important those are to how the free agents on those teams view them continue with the lottery and then i guess the draft and the potential for trades there and then right up through the first you know week of free agency which should be as volatile a period as we've seen in nba history I agree with all that, but I think it's going to start earlier, and it's going to start with the Lakers in pretty soon, but all, especially towards the end of the season and if they make the playoffs in that point, because 
a key swing in these, you know, the cavalcade of decisions that needs to be made is how valuable are the players the Lakers are offering? And I think part of why New Orleans didn't do the deal, you know, some of it was it's the Lakers and all this kind of stuff. But another part of it is the belief that an, that offer or something substantially similar will be on the table and that the additional information that we will get as a collective, but the New Orleans in particular, over these next few months, however long they last with how far the Lakers go, will be incredibly valuable. Like that information will tell them a lot about how these players fit in, how they can handle a pressure cooker physically, mentally, emotionally. And while New Orleans is not the same type of pressure cooker, I could, especially if with the Boston offer just like lingering, lingering in the background, I could see why they would say, hey, we'd rather have a much better idea of what these guys are before we make the deal, assuming a similar one is on the table then. Yeah, the more information, the better. I don't know that their values are going to change dramatically over the next couple months here, though. I'd, I'd be surprised by that. I would be surprised if they changed dramatically, but how a team feels about it, you know, like Brandon Ingram in particular, you know, like he's had some really nice defensive games. I thought he did well against Boston. Is that consistent? Can he, can, do you think that he can really, you know, like envelop guys? He's a very long player who doesn't always use that size. How does that fit in now? The Lakers, and, and part of the reason why some people said, oh, the Lakers offer might not be on the table is that their structural incentives are still the same. They still have LeBron James. There's still big, big questions about how some of these Lakers, not all of them, but how some of them, the young guys, fit in with LeBron. And so if you view LeBron as the center of this universe, then how they fit with him matters more in some ways than how good they are as players, because you can always move them for somebody who's a better fit. So I think that stuff does matter. And it matters enough, even if you're right that it, the changes aren't aren't there, just the potential value of the information should they change is, is really important. And also knowing that they don't change is useful. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, Anytime you get closer to a player's peak, I guess there's slightly more certainty about who they are and, and what they're going to be. Sure. Two other kind of small areas I want to tackle briefly. One is kind of the bottom half of the Eastern playoff picture. It, I mean, as of right now, it kind of feels like the Nets are on more solid footing, though they are technically tied in the loss column with Detroit and Charlotte, and then Miami and Orlando and Washington are not too far behind. Who of that group do you do you kind of trust the most? Like, who, who, Which do you think have the best chance of making it? I, I think Brooklyn is also the team that I trust the most. I mean, it's, it's interesting. Their their projections are not much different. Uh, I'm looking at 538's model. They're a game ahead of Detroit in terms of projected final record and, and two ahead of Charlotte and Orlando. But that's still enough that they're they're over 80% to make the playoffs. Uh, and you know, even that one game is a, a substantial drop down to the Pistons at 70% and then Charlotte at 60%. I think it's probably going to be those three teams. I, I I would be surprised if Orlando could make up enough ground in the last column. They're three games back of all those teams to to get into it. And, you know, Miami seems to be fading. We'll see if Goran Dragic's return can help them. Um, you know, I, I, yeah, I, I, but I think Brooklyn is the one team out of that group that has a real chance to put a scare into someone in the first round of the playoffs, one of those top three teams in the East. I mean, we saw it last night. I mean, they they played yep. a, a they played a great game, and Toronto looked like they were taking control, and then the Nets had one of those just furious comebacks. You know, a very small one to take that lead. They ended up losing the game, but. Brooklyn, they they are they have a, a tendency to tell look good in losses. Miami has done this a few times, but generally they don't. And 
I don't know why, but I, I end up lingering with that. Like of a team that plays a, a plays a talented opponent, especially on the road, like the Toronto game was, plays them well and ends up losing. It's not that it's a moral victory. It's just that you you can take something positive away from that. And but the biggest question for me with these teams is just going to be who can take care of business against the dregs and the semi dregs. And we're going to find out who the semi dregs are soon enough, just with how some of this stuff, especially in the Western Conference, starts shaking out. Yeah, the West we've seen. You know, the East it's probably more clear because other than Washington, who's kind of probably fallen from, you know, still playoff aspiring to uh, now looking more towards the future with the Otto Porter trade, you know, that had already clarified itself. We knew that, you know, Atlanta, Chicago, Cleveland, and New York were out of it since day one, although Atlanta has been feistier lately. In the West, you've seen more of a shift where, you know, New Orleans and Memphis in particular have kind of gone south and, and put their focus on the future rather than this season. The other topic does relate to the kind of the, the rest, the top of the West, but the rest of the West outside of the Warriors. I mean, you have this collection of teams, you know, and there are certainly teams that are better in record and, and I would say overall in quality, like the, the, the Thunder and the Nuggets. But nobody in this group, especially with, you know, it, it, we'll see what happens with Chris Paul. Nobody in this group has re- really inspires a lot of, of trust or faith in me. What I'm wondering here is not who do you think is going to be the best, but which of these teams do you think, do you trust the most? Which of them do you think, and, and as a separate question, who do you think has the highest ceiling? So I would say probably Oklahoma City I trust the most, and they they might have the highest ceiling too if Paul George continues playing at this level and Westbrook is like moderately efficient as we've seen. He's he's been solidly above average in terms of efficiency during this ten game triple double streak. So that's that's an encouraging sign. I mean, you know, if he's playing at that level and Paul George is playing at the level that he's playing at for like a month now, maybe longer, I mean that's that's a top two combination that, you know, pretty much no one outside the Warriors in the West can match. They also have a ton of defensive talent. I worry about them a little bit in the playoffs just because can a team bait Russell Westbrook into shooting the Thunder out of a series? And I think the answer there is yes, depending on which team and which moment. But also what the Thunder have going for them is just the uncertainty in everybody else. You know, I would say I have the most trust in the Blazers because they're exactly the same team, but that trust doesn't mean that I think they're super good. You know, they're a pl- they're an unquestioned to me playoff team. It's just they're not a particularly dangerous one unless they get exactly the right matchup. Basically get the bizarro version of what happened to them last year when they faced a team with the exact wrong strengths and weaknesses for them. And, you know, Denver... I like what Denver can be, and they've had some some real nice moments defensively. I mean, their offensive talent has really blo- has blossomed. You know, there was that stretch in the early part of the season where you were kind of wondering, well, is like they they've been so good offensively before? What's going wrong? And then now that's been good, but the defense hasn't been as potent. So I think they can still put it together. They've also been dealing with health stuff basically this entire year. And Houston, uh, I, I mean, I I mean, I spent all of last year beating the drum saying Houston is the second best team in the league. Houston is all this, and they're the the twin strains of them not being as deep, not having as many you know wing guys that are that are dangerous, but also Chris Paul. Maybe it, maybe some of them will get better with health, but Chris Paul not looking like the guy who was one of the best players on the floor in that conference finals last year. Those elements plus the possibility, if not probability, that Houston ends up in that in that four or five series. I think that. Just just makes life so much harder on them. Yeah, I, I don't really. I, I mean, I, I guess you, you see the path if Chris Paul can get back to where he was last season, where they can get it, you know, be emerges the top contender to Golden State again in the Western Conference. But you know, that it seems like a tougher path at this point to me than than Denver and Oklahoma City have. And you know, if I 
in everything I said earlier, I may be underrating the Nuggets given, as you mentioned, that they have re- remained so competitive despite the fact that they've basically never had their starting lineup intact this season. And, you know, so they've, they've fought through a lot of uh, injury-related adversity that I, you know, could have derailed them, could have derailed a, a lesser team. Um, Portland is about to, to ha- embark on a the most difficult part of their schedule, maybe already has started into it. They've lost two in a row with the Warriors at home the night before the All-Star break. Uh, on Wednesday, that's a big one to me because you know you head into the All Star break with a three game losing streak. You're you're looking at life very differently than if you're coming off a win against the Warriors, and then immediately after the break, head out on a doing the math here seven game road trip that includes three of the best four teams, three of the four teams in the East that we've been talking about as the leading contenders at Philly, at Boston, and at Toronto. So that's going to be a brutal stretch for them. Oof. I mean, that does have the possibility of, of galvanizing if they if they can do really well. But I mean, that there is a lot of challenge there. I mean, and they've had some struggles. I would love to. I haven't checked the numbers yet, but it seems like they haven't done as well against the best teams this year. I mean, they lost to OKC yesterday. But I, I do want to see the facts there. So the last thing I want to ask you just briefly is your feel. So I think we have six teams in the West that are going to make the playoffs. I'm including the Blazers there, even if we're not necessarily inspired about what the damage they will do there. That leaves two spots. There are a bunch of teams that potentially could do it, but a narrow group that are probably more likely. Who do you see as the the two teams that make it out of that scrum? Hmm. No, I th- I still have more faith in San Antonio. I think than you know, despite the fact that they've slumped lately. Derek White's injury has been a big factor in that, so I think they get him back, they'll be fine. And then the eighth spot. I think it's probably going to be one of the L.A. teams, but I don't really have a strong feel on that either way. It looked so much easier when the Clippers made their first trade and not their second trade. Because <laughs> yes. when, they, when they had, you know, they traded Tobias Harris, and they, I, I love that trade from their perspective, not only for the clarity of vision, but for the asset accumulation. But then when they traded Avery Bradley for Jermichael Green and, and Garrett Temple, it was, uh, it was a, addition by subtraction because Avery Bradley was one of the most destructive players in the league. I mean, he had just not been good and they had so many other capable players that you're sitting there going why is he playing so much but also because they added guys that can actually help this team and so that is you know I think they're more competitive there and I know some have said oh you know they would love to miss the playoffs you know organizationally keep their pick and all this kind of stuff that's not the way Doc Rivers is going to handle it that's not the way these players are going to do it so I don't think they're going to like take their foot off the accelerator because of these structural incentives I'm also not sure that's a good way to pitch free agents no hey, we missed the playoffs, but we kept our draft pick. Like, you know, I don't think it's ultimately going to make the difference in whether they sign, you know, say Kawhi Leonard or not this offseason. But I think it's a lot easier to make that sales pitch if you've, you know, made the playoffs, shown that you're, you know, you have a competitive roster that you're joining, even without Tobias Harris, uh, rather than the other way around. Uh, yeah, it was addition by subscription. So, uh, I, I can say that word, addition by subtraction, not only with uh, Avery Bradley, but also because of the fact that, you know, uh, after trading for Zubac, they waived Marcin Gortat. Those two guys are both in the bottom six in my wins above replacement player metrics so far this season. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's that's wild. And two guys that have massive track records that a coach 
would feel pressure to play because of, of what they've done. And also worth noting, the Clippers have the softest schedule of any of these teams on the on the bottom. The Lakers have a comparatively hard schedule. The Spurs are pretty close on the difficulty side to the Clippers, but they're you know they have a lot of soft games. They have a lot of games against teams that are bad and have an incentive to stay bad, even if those incentives are muted compared to prior years. Uh, you want a crazy stat with uh, Avery Bradley and Marcin Gortat on the court this season, according to NBA.com. The Clippers were outscored by 9.6 points per 100 possessions. And they're over 500. And those two guys were part of their starting lineup. <laughs> that's insane. <laughs> a lot of the time. I mean, that's, oh, man. That is wild that they were so ineffective and they were continuing to play so much. Those guys played 15 minutes a night together in the games that they were both available or both played. Um, the other team we haven't mentioned here, by the way, is the Kings, who yeah. you know deserve mention. Absolutely. I, I believe they are the eighth seed in the standings right now, aren't they, after they the are. Clippers lost? Yeah, 30 yeah. and 26. I'm still pretty skeptical that they're going to be able to uh, maintain this. They've got the they're down with the Lakers in terms of worst point differential among these teams and you know the Lakers obviously that's substantially uh, affected by the time that LeBron missed you know I think you know you know LeBron LeBron staying healthy is a necessary uh, factor for the Lakers to end up being the eight seed in Sacramento's case you know I, I went and looked at this the other day we have seen them kind of regress over the course of the season back not tw- not to what we expected going into the season, but towards that. Uh, I think there was about a month's stretch, you know, leading up to, I looked at this midway through last week before the Harrison Barnes trade, uh, or maybe the night of it, and they had been outscored by about three points per game in that span. So, you know, unless, unless Barnes substantially changes their trajectory in a way that I don't expect, I don't think that, I think at some point they're going to fall out of this. You can tell me better if if BPI incorporates this, but Sacramento, you know, they're the talk of their their remaining schedule and they're middle of the road there in terms of degree of difficulty in terms of opponent strength of schedule. But they also have meaningfully more road games than home games. They played four more home games so far, and I mean they have some really tough road stuff coming up. I mean, right after the break at Golden State, at OKC, at Minnesota, at Mil- oh no, home against Milwaukee. Granted, that's also a really tough game. But like that's going to be a tough stretch for them and they have they have an east coast road trip that's still left they still have to play all the texas teams on the road so i just think they have they have a really tough path from here on out now they could do it i mean they've exceeded expectations the whole time they're a really tough team to play against because of the uh, the aggressive pace but some of those things there's they're a wonderful story even if they lost every game the rest of the season they're still a spectacular story but yes that might it, it might just be too much to to expect that, and I would love to be wrong because it's a wonderful story, and for selfish reasons, having another playoff team in Northern California would be great. Especially if it was against the Warriors in the first round, and you yeah. could cover the whole series. Uh, BPI has the Lakers' schedule fifth hardest the rest of the season, Kings' seventh hardest, and the Clippers' the 22nd hardest, so the, the ninth easiest schedule the rest of the way. Interesting. And, and at oh, this, San Antonio, third easiest. Yeah, that, that's a big help. And and San Antonio also has the advantage of a better record right now. I mean, they're 32 and 26, so they have they have more ground to fall and they have an easier team to, to, to face off. So yeah, I, I expect, though, as you said, you know, things like Derek White, you know, they're they have depth, but I don't think they necessarily have replacements everywhere. So we'll, we'll see what it looks like. But yeah, this is going to be a really fun spurt to the finish. And I think now, especially 
especially with the incentives involved and everything else, the Eastern Conference, the first round, I mean, other than the Nets series, might not be. And, you know, we'll see what, what Indiana can bring to the table with those series. But the West will be really interesting in the first round, and then the East can take precedence for a couple rounds. That'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess that's reasonable. I mean, I still think those are going to be good series in the Western Conference. They'll, they'll certainly be an entertaining series to watch, even if the outcome of the Warriors-related series is, is probably pretty preordained. We've talked about plenty. Is there anything else that you feel like we should definitely mention as like kind of something to look for the next couple of weeks or, or even longer than that? I think we've probably covered it. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Always a pleasure. Thanks again to Kevin Pelton for taking the time to come on. You can read his work at ESPN. You can listen to the fabulous Pelton Cast podcast and his many appearances other places as well. Follow him on Twitter at K-P-E-L-T-O-N. Love talking with Kevin. I'm Always thrilled when he has the time. The work that he did at the trade deadline was Herculean. I mean, I try to be productive, and it's just completely ludicrous. That's the work, the workload that he can handle and have the quality be so ridiculously strong is genuinely impressive and awe-inspiring. So if you want to give him some love for that, I, I strongly encourage you to do so. Before we go, quick conversation with Dave Mason of betonline.ag about trade deadline features and everything else. I learned a lot from this conversation, which is really my goal of these conversations with Dave. And hopefully that means you do the same. Thanks so much for coming on. Absolutely. There is a lot going on right now in the world of sports, but also in the world of basketball. And what I thought would be the most interesting to talk to you about with your position at Bet Online is the challenges regarding the trade deadline. So there's there are kind of two different threads as I see it. You can obviously correct me if I'm mistaken, but I was thinking of it as the the game to game stuff because you don't know when different players are going to be integrated. You also don't know how good the teams are going to be, but also the future stuff, because you have a lot of action, I would assume, that shifts on these teams. You know, like I could think of Philly as an obvious example here with the optimism usually that happens around the trade deadline. No, you're absolutely correct. The trade deadline is always um, uh, such a challenging week, no matter what the sport is. And, uh, you know, I, I, I always say that I work more on the marketing side of things as opposed to the risk management kind of thing. So I, I always want all this content up there, especially during trade line because people are talking about it. So I'm like, hey, Anthony Davis might get traded. We need people are asking what the odds are and yada, 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 yada. And the guys on the stage who are responsible for the numbers and the odds and the red numbers and everything, they're like, whoa, 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 we got to close this stuff because of the same exact reason. So it's always kind of a tug of war. You know, I'm like, you know, open it, open it, open it. They're like, no, close it, close it, close it. But uh, yeah, so that there's give and take there. You know what I mean? There, uh, There's some times where they have to close and there's, there's just no way in hell they can, especially with those futures when you have a lot of big uh, numbers out there. You know what I mean? They, you brought up the Sixers. I mean, they're they're a prime example of of we were in the black with them all year meaning in the black i mean if they won it all we would have a nice big profit on on the futures on the sixers last week i believe they're when all before they start making these trades i, I believe they're 25 to 1 with us and then they dropped down to 22 to 1 and then when they got harris i mean people just started betting the heck out of it and now they're our biggest red figure now if they won today they we would lose a, a substantial amount of money so that's how much money comes in on the, on these futures especially during trade deadlines you know, rumors coming in, uh, money's coming in, any kind of rumor will come in and you'll start seeing uh, 
money popping, like the Lakers, for instance, when the people thought they were going to get Anthony Davis, uh, we start seeing all these bets on the Lakers. So it works out both ways. You know, you get the premature betters who are kind of taking a risk there. And, uh, that, but then also, you know, get the guys like the Sixers who get good value because well, we're not moving the odds quick enough. But I mean, they're down to 12 to 1. I mean, they're 25 to 1 over a week ago. So, I mean, talk about value. Yeah. And, and the advantages of moving quickly versus moving late. And then the other part, intellectually to me, that, that is a challenge with futures bets that isn't as much for setting, let's say, an over under or for a line for a game is that you can't short it. So so basically, it isn't about setting up something that people are going to bet on both sides. It's about creating, as you said, like the red versus black value, which is, it, to me, I, I'm not the person whose job it is, but it seems like that would be a way bigger challenge. Yeah, it is. The good thing is you have a whole season, or not now, but you get months, weeks, season to get it back. So if you are in the red, so if we are in the red in the Sixers, we have a while to, to, to bring that number down and get it back into the black. Um, our guys do an awesome job at doing that. Sometimes I think they're a little too conservative, but then I'd look at the end of the year as like, okay, well, we're win-win on all these top teams. So, you know, me thinking they're too conservative, you know, it doesn't matter because they're doing the right thing. They, they do a really good job. So, so no, yeah, you're right, but they do have time to, you know, there might be get those guys who get that good early value, but as long as it's corrected and, uh, and, and looked at over the months and then, you know, they'll be keeping an eye on that big red Sixers number every day. So, um, they'll get it down. And it's fascinating to think about that from a, the risk from a team by team perspective, because that's not something that I would do. But in your business, that makes complete sense. No, absolutely. I mean, it's the only way to go, right? I mean, you, you just these futures are tricky. They, but they, you know, they get so much action, they're, and they're so important for the house too, because you know you, you lock these people in, you lock these betters in. Better betters are so a lot of betters are so transient; they disappear and everything. So. You know, you really have to get these guys betting these futures, locking it up, and, and you know, they're going to be with you all season. You know, even if they, 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 go do, they go dormant for a month and they win their future in June, well, now they got money in their account and they're betting with you again. So, yeah, the way our guys manage futures is great. Again, I, I, I always think – sometimes I think, oh, they're too, being too conservative, this and that, but, but th- their numbers prove me wrong at the end of the season. And that's why the long game is really valuable, and it's appropriate with futures that that it goes in that direction, because that's what they are. They're long games the whole time. And also, you think about all of the optimism, let's say, around the offseason, and Team X, you know, people people throw some money on that, and then we know a month or two into the season that they're just out. And so you have those benefits as well. No, absolutely. I mean, there's always a hot team in the futures. Every other day, anytime a dang rumor comes out, you know, people are betting it. You know, it's it's almost like switching sports. It's not even sports, but the presidential odds is a perfect example. Every time one of these bozos announce they're going to run for president, people start betting them. And it's like, well, what the hell? Like every other week, someone's someone's announcing. They just think they're getting that early value. So, you know, all that next this last week, it's a Sixers. Next week, it's going to be someone else that they're, they're that's the hot team they're betting. And that and that Sixers liability will shrink down. And by, you know, by the end of June, it's it's we're, we're in the black no matter whom it's playing. Is there anything else in this line of futures and trade deadline that you think is is, is good for listeners to understand about about the business? Um, not really. It is a challenge, but it's something I love. Um, you know, it, it's it it gets people betting too. That that that's another thing. Sure, we're exposed on the Sixers, but just think about all that extra action that came in on the futures last week. I mean, if you during a trade deadline, it's one of the biggest bet for futures. For we, uh, how am I supposed to say this? Big, one of the biggest weeks for future betting of the year, no matter what the sport, because it's just all these rumors and people are eating up these rumors. They're seeing it on Twitter. So yes, 
It's a little risky for us. You know, we do get in a red on some of these teams like the Sixers. But that being said, we want the action coming in. So all that extra action is coming in, which which I love. Yeah, and the enthusiasm has to benefit in other areas as well, because then you get more people engaged, you get more people involved in doing other things, and that has benefits too. Oh, no, 100%. And, you know, I, I, you know I'm i big on Twitter, and, and I, I love the Twitter, and people talking BS and back and forth on Twitter about it, and it's, you know, just the hype and, and the controversy and all that stuff. All that stuff just make, makes, makes people want to bet it, and you're talking about the odds, so it's great. I love it. It's a really fun time of year. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you so much. Thanks again to David Mason of betonline.ag for coming on. You can, of course, use that Podcast One promo code for a 50% sign-up bonus. I'll also mention, of course, Kevin Pelton one more time. He deserves as many mentions as I can give him. K-P-E-L-T-O-N on Twitter. ESPN. Amazing work. I love it when he has the chance to appear on the jump as well, when that has the opportunity to transpire. And hopefully he gets a little bit of breathing time now that one of the benefits, and I'm actually going on a short little vacation of sorts, because now that the trade deadline is before All-Star, there's just not a lot going on then. I mean, you can have fun with the All-Star break itself. And so since I'm not traveling to Charlotte this year, I'm going to just unwind for a little bit, which I'm pretty excited about. That also gives me some time to think about where I want to go with the podcast over the next couple weeks. I will obviously think about and work on that. If you have any feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, Danny LaRue, NBA at gmail.com is the way to do it. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. That is a promise. I'm not always great at responding, but I do always read them as soon as they pop in my inbox. That's what's most important. But if if I'm going to give a response, I want to be thoughtful. So I sometimes take more time because this is when I have it. If you want to support the show, you can leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast player of your choosing. It's great if it's Apple Podcasts. They're still really big in our business. And if you want to be even more awesome, if you use something else, you can write a review both places. I really do appreciate that. You can also use word of mouth in person, social media, whatever makes you happy. Tell people you like an episode or you like the series and maybe they'll like it too. Also, subscribing, downloading every episode, those are particularly important for a show like Real GM Radio because we don't come out on a specific day of the week. So you can't get into a habit of, oh, I'm going to check, you know, it'll be in it this point and that works for other podcasts i can't do it that way it's guest availability my own timing everything else like that also of course the most important thing you can do with this or any other show is check out our advertisers peter millar m-i-l-l-a-r dot com slash real gm great products you can get free shipping free hat if you go through that link betonline.ag podcast one promo code 50 percent sign up bonus art of sport art of sport.com real gm promo code get you 50% off their trial kit and free shipping, which is fantastic. And True Car, great place to buy and sell new news cars and also trade in your car. I will have more material. I have a piece coming out for The Athletic on, it sounds like it's going to be Wednesday morning. I'm working on other stuff because I'm me and probably have some other things in, in, in the offing. There's a lot of content from Dunked On, of course, if you want the trade deadline stuff. That's all, all well and good. We're taking a little bit of time off as well, but we'll be back full force the end of next week. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.
Microsoft Surface Pro 8 has the power of a laptop and the versatility of a tablet, all in one. This thin and adaptable device has a touchscreen and a newly designed signature keyboard that can even store your Surface Pen. Surface Pro 8 is Microsoft's most powerful pro yet. Show the world how you stand out with Surface Pro 8. Check it out at surface.com slash surface pro 8.